Hello, welcome to NHSR podcast number 10. So today we have some guests from the NHS AI Lab Skunkworks. Uh, I'll introduce them in a moment just to say quickly about NHSR. So NHSR is a group of people in the UK working in health and social care. We like to use open source data science tools. We have we favour R, obviously, hence the name, but we're very friendly towards other programming languages. And we indeed, we had the, uh, the NHS PyCom community on the podcast recently. So we're particularly interested in using open source data science tools. And we're also particularly interested in sharing analytical code. And we tend to discuss things like that on this uh, podcast. And today will be no exception to that rule. So my name is Chris Bealey. I am the co-chair of the NHSR Technical Advisory Group. I'm a data scientist and I work in Nottinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust. So before we kick off, we'll just tell everyone to introduce themselves. So Amadeus first, please. Hi everyone, uh, great to be here. My name's Amadeus. I'm a data technology lead in the Skunkworks team. So I oversee uh, project scoping, sort of feasibility, data discoveries, and just really support our data scientists. Hi everyone, uh, I'm Matt Cooper. I'm a senior data scientist within the Skunkworks team. So I'm um, doing both hands-on data science and kind of technical oversight for the range of different projects that we support. Hi, um, it's great to be here. My name is Jennifer Hall and I'm a senior data scientist in the AR Lab Skunkworks team like Matt. Um, I'm also very hands-on in terms of our data science projects and also have technical oversight of our other projects as well. Great. Okay, so let's kick off with the first question then. So basically, what is the, what is the AR Lab? Where does the sort of concept of Skunkworks fit into it? And tell us about why it was created and what problem it addresses. Sure thing. So the NHS AI Lab was set up uh, around summer 2020 um, as a joint um, sort of unit between the Department for Health and Social Care and NHS England. And the real mission of the AI Lab um, is to accelerate the safe, ethical and effective adoption of AI in the health and social care sector. So we do that through a number of programmes. We're a programme ourselves. And one of the programs is the Skunkworks program. So um, in addition to our colleagues in the sort of regulations, ethics and imaging programs, we uh, really are, are designed to help improve capability, understanding of AI through practical experience. So our focus is much like you just mentioned, Chris, on uh, about NHSR, open source, code sharing and sort of education and really proving what's possible um, so running feasibility projects. So we've got a number of different ways we work and a number of projects which we're looking forward to talking about today. Cool. Thanks very much. So one of the things that I've been asked about on the podcast, people have mentioned it when they've come on, of stuff that they'd like to hear more about. And I think I've heard this from just people on Slack and various places as well, is I think everyone's very interested in kind of productionizing machine learning. I think the NHS has done people sort of messing around with it and getting it running on the laptop. But I think people are interested to hear about kind of getting it actually going. So what can you tell us about that? Yes, I think we definitely see um, a lot of data science in sort of notebooks, um, or as you mentioned on, well, we would say on-premise computer systems, or maybe hopefully not that too many laptops. <laughs> to be technical. Um, well, because um, we see a, a range of everything. And you're right, I think for a number of reasons, um, there aren't a lot of machine learning models deployed in production. I would say that that is the case across government. It's not a health and care issue. I think across HMG, there's been a challenge to, to productionize. I think what we've seen is it's great that the trust that we work with, the organizations we work with, are sort of now hiring data science teams. So step one is the capability of doing the data science work. What we haven't yet seen yet is the hiring of machine learning engineers. In fact, a machine learning engineer isn't yet a official a DDAT role within the government sort of uh, technical framework of capability and skills. So I think just as a government as a whole, we're quite early on 
understanding the skill set it takes to take a model from development through um, productions and monitoring deployment etc this is my opportunity to plug um, that we do have a, a cross-government uh, mlops sort of community of interest and that's designed to try and find people in government who are actually doing this so far um, we've had some great presentations from ministry of justice and gchq um, but there's uh, we're mainly in listening mode so um, we're not really seeing a huge amount of deployment um, and part of that is a regulatory issue as well, specifically uh, a medical device uh, regulation challenge. So that's sort of my perspective. So can people, the MLOps thing, how do people register and how does that work? Yes, so um, there is a government data science Slack, which is govdatascience.slack.com, um, which you can join with um, an NHS UK email address, um, or I think NHS.net as well. And uh, within that, there's a Slack channel called MLOps. And basically once a month, there's a, a meeting, which again, people can just, it's posted, people can come and attend that and listen in. Um, so that's where we're at at the moment. Yeah, it's quite interesting. We we talk quite a lot about kind of um, careers and even not just in terms of like AI and machine learning, but in my kind of land of analysis generally in the health service. And I suppose the thing is you're saying about machine learning engineer not being a DDAT role, it is all quite quick, isn't it? So it feels like maybe we're still kind of playing catch up a little bit. like the, Because machine learning engineer, I don't think I'd really heard that term maybe like three years ago, I don't think it really existed. So it's pretty hard, I think. And, and you know, the NHS and government can move quite slowly. Can't I? I think it can be hard to kind of keep up with, you know, the, with progress, really. Yeah, 100%. I didn't know, Matt and Jennifer, your, your sort of views. Yeah, I think the only thing I was going to mention was, I guess, the way that the Skunk Works team works. One of the things that we do is putting on these problem sourcing events where we ask trusts and um, organisations across kind of the health and care space to come to us and tell us what their problems are. So, by nature of that, we get some people coming with those problems who are very technical, maybe data scientists or people that have got technical background, or maybe just coding, software engineers, that kind of thing. But we also get people at the very other end of the spectrum where they have a problem, they know vaguely how maybe you might solve it, or they've maybe read some somewhere or something or heard something to say, you know, maybe this, this kind of algorithm might be the key to unlocking our problem. But they're coming to us and saying, uh, you know, can you help us with it? So when you then maybe take that project on, get towards it, get towards, you know, having something to hand over to them before you can get to productionization some of the problems we're seeing is getting it running for people getting things into their hands and then once you've got it running beginning to think about how it's maintained and things because like Amadeus was saying some teams are hiring data scientists in but some teams simply don't have the resource you know, the time but they still want to be able to take advantage of that so that's something that we're trying to navigate and work out what the best way how we can best help teams to do that because it's a shame to do that work, you know, do that investigation, look at the really interesting problem, but then be scuppered by something like IT problems or not being able to get it into their hands so they can play around with it and work out what the next best best step for them is. Yeah, a big thing for us in HSR actually is uh, we really want to talk to non-technical people. We're often saying this, that just because you're technical doesn't necessarily mean that you know the interesting problems to work on. And But we find it very hard. It's interesting that you're doing that because we find it very hard to kind of engage people. I think it can be a bit off-putting maybe. Some of the language and some of the tools and stuff can be quite overwhelming but i think just getting just ordinary people with problems in off the street and just you know talking to them about what they need i think is, is a big part of what we need to be doing really i think that's definitely something we've seen and some of the feedback we've seen around how ai is communicated out into wider trust so people understand what a particular problem or project is trying to do how it would slot in with their day-to-day -day. you know maybe the, the, the tool isn't trying to replace them or remove their job it's their support because the NHS is, you know, very busy and have lots of very diverse challenges and issues, trying to help people understand exactly how tools can help them and how what we're doing is there to 
kind of like I say, a support and assist rather than replace or, um, you know, kind of fully automate and that type of thing. And I definitely agree with the point you just said there about the problems quite often from the less technical people are the really interesting ones. They're the ones who have a really in-depth understanding of their very particular area where they work and therefore they can guide you and provide lots of really interesting support and guidance in terms of how a problem should be framed, what the the issues might be with the data or uh, the users, maybe all that sort of thing. Uh, It's super, super valuable to speak to those people, I agree. So I think this is a really interesting area. And I think for me, it's almost a change in the way that we think about AI projects. The fact that an AI project lasts as long as the lifetime of the model. We never really stop looking after the model and how we maintain the model. And how we do that can be very specific to the use case and the context and how critical that system is in terms of the workflow, in terms of what it's doing. And we have really interesting conversations with trusts in terms of what's going to happen if this model starts to decay, if this model starts to go wrong, what do we what do? we do? How do we monitor that? And I think it goes back to what um, Amadeus and Matt were saying around the skill sets needed to be able to continue that for the lifetime of the eye bottle. Yeah, I mean, I have this, it's very interesting you should say that because I have this exact problem quite often. I, people talk about stuff on this podcast that I actually want to know myself, to be honest. And this is a similar one. So I've built, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's very simple, but I've got some machine learning models that read patient experience feedback and tag it. And I don't, I, I want to kind of give, you know, they're open source. I want to kind of give them to NHS, give them away. But how do you, do, like, I can't just give them a load of Python scripts because they don't know how to do it. Like, how do I take something that I've built and just, as you're saying, like, you know, and it could decay or it needs to be, you know, like, because, well, I don't know who you're working with. Obviously, I, you know, a lot of trust, they don't have that kind of set up the skills. Now, I think there's a really um, interesting opportunity right now. So as I'm sure your listeners are aware, um, the Laura Wade Geary review came out recently and NHS Digital NHS X and a Health Education England are going to be rolled into the Transformation Directorate of, um, oh sorry, NHS X is going to roll into the Transformation Directorate of NHS ENI, NHS Digital is going to roll into NHS ENI, and um, HE will roll into NHS ENI as well. And I think it's the as I'm relatively new to the NHS and to healthcare, um, I've really been quite struck by quite how federated the system is, i.e., how independent the trusts are. How, what's the role of the centre? What's the role of the region? And I think for me, I would love, and this is my like, the thing I would love to happen is that there is some sort of central function which can support things which are relatively common. So for your example, Chris, your tagging model, I'm sure wouldn't, I mean, it would vary across regions, uh, especially if you go to Wales, it obviously be completely different. Um, But, you know, there are definitely some opportunities to have centralized teams which are able to look at that because it is a full-time job i think the point of having a machine learning engineer job title is that's your full-time job and you work with data engineers and data scientists and product owners and like there's a whole ecosystem so um, and that's really hard for a trust to do um you know imagine having a team of six people who just look after a model it, i can't quite see that happening whereas there's an opportunity for example the nhs digital which does build national systems like spine um, and the director of services and a whole bunch of other stuff to take on some of that so i don't think there's there isn't an answer but i think it's really important that we figure one out um, to get the most value out of the, the potential machine learning has which is after all about the working with data at scale yeah i mean the big thing that i feel is is lacking which i always bang on about is just linux that seems so important to what I do in terms of deploying models in service and all that kind of stuff. 
and it feels like every trust needs to employ a Linux, you know, data ops person, but that would be just grotesquely inefficient because then they'd, they'd be twiddling their thumbs most of the time, wouldn't they? So yeah, having this very independent thing is, um, yeah, it's difficult. And yeah, speaking personally, I just don't want to productionize models. It's not my skill set. It doesn't interest me. I want to just build them and say, right, there you go, and then just do something else. And having a system that allows you to do that, I think would be really valuable. Yeah, and that's really interesting. And one thing we try to do in terms of sharing when we open source our repos is to make sure that we have things like fake data in it so people can test the running of the code so they get to interact with it, understand what's needed. Because the other thing as well, what we found is when sharing models is that data can vary significantly from place to place. So how do we make sure that the, the model is as accessible to as many trusts as possible? And we, and we try to do that by using fake data in the repository so people can test. Another thing that we think is really helpful is adding things like integration tests into the repositories where people can run the code or see an example and test their environment um, to make sure that it's running correctly. And um, that's a really quick and easy way to be able to do that kind of thing. And um, before we get into sort of the detail of is the model performing well on my data, it can be a really quick test to be able to do that. So in terms of how we package it up, in, term, in terms of open sourcing it, we try and make sure there's some really simple things in there that people can run very quickly to understand what's working and what's not working. Um, and that's been very beneficial. We, what we also try to do is add um, documentation um, and make sure that's really clear about what the model is doing and how that model is working. Um, and again, that can be reassurance to, to different people in terms of um, the transparency of the model, exactly what it's doing. Um, so I think in terms of packaging up, I think there's sort of series of things that we can do in terms around transparency, um, testing in the environment very quickly, and also using fake data so, can be, so people can see how the model was built and what it needs to be trained as well. But Amadeus has done quite a lot of work in this area, so I don't know, Amadeus, is there anything you wanted to add? No, I mean, that's basically my job is to take um, uh, often models or repos that were given and just try and not fluff them, but kind of wrap them around with really good documentation that's consistent, helping to test, working with the team to build testing and, and, and yeah, kind of packaging them for consumption. Um, but it's a really interesting point because it actually makes me think of one of the great things about AI is actually the technical stuff is so small compared to everything else. So when you think about when we talk about machine learning models and AI, that's that's a, obviously like the core part of, of the data science, but it's then what we've just been talking about. But then you've got a whole nother wrap around that, which is the reg side, it's the governance side, it's the ethics, which is um, really uh, evolving quite quickly. So um, again, I don't know if your readers or readers, your listeners will be familiar with um, the algorithmic impact assessment that was just launched with the Ada Lovelace Institute, but it's starting to bring in the patient public voice into the decision to actually develop algorithms in the first place. So I think the one of the um, sort of my responses when people say we're worried about AI taking jobs is there are actually so many jobs that are needed to deliver AI, not just the machine learning and the data engineer and the data scientist and the product manager that we talked about, but the regulation specialist, the regulatory consultant, the information governance lead, the ethics lead. So um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to get involved with AI um, for non-technical people as well as for technical people. Um, but yeah, so that was just sort of train of thought from from what Jennifer was mentioning. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I often hear, as I say, I've done some, as I say, fairly modest stuff with reading patient feedback. And that's a, a common question that I get, actually, is am I trying to replace people? 
And well, we were talking about Marcus actually uh, on the podcast a little while ago was we were talking about a similar thing. I think certainly at the moment, my impression is, I mean, who knows where AI is going, I guess. But my impression really is that we're not trying to replace it. We're trying to give them a more interesting job. So sifting through thousands of bits of text feedback is actually not very interesting. What I'd rather do is find the 50 bits of f- feedback that are really interesting and show them to you and, you know, and, and hide the other ones. Um, I think, you know, from my perspective, it seems like it's going to be a long time before any job could be done really in its entirety by any of the stuff that we're talking about. So because people can bring such a unique, I mean, particularly, I mean, patient experience is my first love, really. It, it's exp- it's about human emotion, isn't it? So the idea of replacing a human in that transaction seems almost ridiculous, really. It's much more about you know, sifting. And, and that's what Marcus was saying as well in terms of showing people clinical notes, you know, so you could make a machine, instead of making a machine that's a doctor, make a machine that can find interesting clinical facts and documents and surface. And that's what you want. The doc, we treat, we trust the doctor to read them and understand them and make the judgments about them. Anyway, there's so many rabbit holes we could go down. I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to, to, to chase some of them. But you did mention data, Jennifer, which I think is particularly uh, and it's a nice segue into the next question as well. Synthetic data is, for a lot of people I know, a, a, a horrible, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive unsolved, well, maybe not unsolved, but it's a very tricky problem. And I understand that you have done quite a lot of work with synthetic data. So um, it'd be good to talk about that. Yeah, brilliant. So we, we've recently undertaken a project with the analytics unit, um, which also sit in uh, previously NHSX now, somewhere else in HS England, I think, who have, as part of a PhD internship scheme, which they run, where PhD students come in and um, work within uh, the analytics unit for a period of time, put together a um, repository called SynthVAE, which is a variational, variational altering coder to generate synthetic data. We were asked to support them in a project which is going on at the moment and um, to provide them some, some, some synthetic data, but synthetic data that was slightly more rich than the data that was produced by SynthV as released initially. So we, myself and Jennifer, took on this project to look at how we could kind of put SynthV into maybe a bit more of a practical, functional kind of setup. So you could put in a data set, put in a model, um, run some checks on the data, some consistent checks. So you had a set of checks that told you um, things about the synthetic data and report all those out um, so that you could maybe repeatedly generate synthetic data using a range of models or um, a, a few different data sets and look at how those models were performing. So we ended up using SynthV, like I said. Um, we were were looking at, well, we, we, we ended up putting together a pipeline using Kedro, so um, fitting together components um, like the model, um, the set of checks, um, which, we, which we put together, um, and then like kind of a pre-processing stage to pull together an input data set. We ended up using Mimic3 data as the input data, you know, a, a, nice, a nice open source, really rich data set. One of the um, problems that Synthy, or not problems, but I guess one of the improvements that was there to be made on Synthy was the fact that it used um, a data set which only had categorical and um, continuous variables in. Um, and one of the asks was to try and make that a little bit more rich, provide um, a more diverse range of um, fields and look at whether or not we could use date time as well. So Mimic um, provided that um, by having lots of data um, initially. And although Mimic is a synthetic data set in itself, it provided a good kind of case study as to how you might use um, a real data set that looked like Mimic in a pipeline like this. And so we took some of the M- Mimic files, combined them, combined them together in a way that produced a sensible looking output file, piped that into SynthVE and provided some um, little amendments to that so it could take the Mimic data. And then after that, we um, 
pushed it through a range of different checks that provided kind of scores and metrics around um, the um, utility of the data. So you could um, compare the synthetic data to the real data and say, how similar is it? Might it be suitable to be able to use in place of the real data? And then all that was reported out. So it was kind of a project which hooked up lots of different pieces using various open source pieces. So Synthfi is published openly um, on the NHSX GitHub. And it, yeah, it was, it was basically an exercise in trying to um, take those components and make something practical that we could or someone else could run end to end and get some synthetic data out, um, as well as these scoring metrics. Jennifer, I didn't know if you wanted to say anything on the metrics, because um, I know that that was a part that you worked on. Yes, thank you. So um, a big part of synthetic data is how do you evaluate it? And the analytics unit have done a lot of work on that, and we try to incorporate that into the pipeline. So it's easy to run for people who are interested in analysing their synthetic data. When it comes to analysing synthetic data, there is three considerations. So um, utility, so is the data fit for its defined use? The quality, so is the data a good enough representation of reality? And then the privacy, so does the synthetic data leak? any sensitive information about the source data. Our checks really focus sort of on, on the quality. So we explore things like comparing the distributions of different features in the data set. We also look at propensity modeling, seeing whether or not a logistic regression model can differentiate between synthetic and the real data to understand how closely related they are. There's also, um, we also consider things like collision analysis. So do the rows in the real data appear in the synthetic data exactly, or do we have no matches? So there is quite a diverse range of checks that we that we try to do, and we do want to add more in the future as well. But this is just where we felt um, what we needed um, for this particular project with the analytics unit. But we hope that this will provide a good basis for other people to compare their synthetic data. Yeah, so what I think I'll do is I'll put, because we're talking about lots of things together aren't we? I think I'll group for just for people listening I'll group the links together so I'll put all the stuff that you've mentioned in the synthetic data bit and then when we talk about other things and I'll, I'll I'll link them all together so don't worry if you're not following all because I'm not following all the words that are being thrown around so we'll, we'll put all the links in the chat yeah it's interesting what you said about date times I think that that's the thing about synthetic data is it sounds quite I mean I've been interested in it for ages it sounds quite mm -hmm. simple doesn't it I, I think when you when you get to it you think oh I'm just going to generate you know a load of people with scores you know that kind of thing but actually like the example that we have is that we're quite interested in people like moving around between wards and all that kind of thing so when we generate synthetic data we kind of want like a, a real patient who would be in for 17 days and then disappear for three months and 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 that seems like a really 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 hard thing to make obviously you could just randomize it but you'll just get absurd patient journeys that, that would never happen so that's um yeah i guess the, the devil's in the detail isn't it really with this kind of thing yeah i think i would agree with that I, I think this piece of work didn't try and do kind of the longitudinal part because like you say it's quite complex and i think it is an area that's being explored or as an area of interest at least within kind of the, the teams within nhsx and the transformation directorate the way that we looked at date times was how you kind of practically they could fit into synth ve as the as the repository as the model because the initial implementation didn't try and take those in so it's coming more from a perspective of maybe an individual event in a kind of hospital data set maybe a patient 
being admitted, but without trying to have that continuity. So like you're saying about the patient maybe coming in and coming out of the hospital, this would maybe just say, okay, yeah, here's a here's a person that's been admitted to hospital at this time and maybe they had treatment at this time. And that was how the date times were used in this case. But I definitely agree that it's, I think, particularly in healthcare, the longitudinal synthetic data is a really interesting topic and would maybe simplify lots of things where you want to have patient records to try and do models on um, or it's an interesting area you want to explore but it isn't appropriate to use real patient records so that's somewhere that using synthetic data would be really really valuable yeah i mean we're we're very much hamstrung to be honest by you know because we would like to share so much more of what we do but we've just got real data we don't have anything else so it's, it's just very difficult yeah I think that's where it became really interesting for us because we're doing all these different projects with lots of different kind of topics and focuses. And like Jennifer was saying earlier, it's really nice to be able to, when you open social code, provide some data to show how it would work because a lot of these trusts, even if the data is in the trust, they might not have access to it. Going back to the point of working, our team in particular, working with teams who maybe aren't as technical. So they might want to see how the product might be able to run or the tool might be able, might be able to run, but they can't get their hands on the data. I just wanted to point out that we have done this in Python, but there are some really um, interesting R packages that your listeners might be interested in. So um, a main sort of R package in and synthetic data is SynthPop. So if anyone is coding in R and is interested in exploring synthetic data, SynthPop might be one to look at. Okay, cool. I'll stick that in as well. And actually, that was quite a good uh, segue as well. We're having lots of happy segues in this uh, episode. So, because the next thing I was going to ask you, there's a, a long stayers project that's gone on. So, can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So, that's a project that we put a case study out a few months ago now. I feels like the time's slipping away from me, which was looking at basically how can we try and predict how long someone is going to stay in a hospital when they're admitted to hospital. It's obviously a very difficult problem. This was a project that was undertaken through the Skunk Works problem sourcing event. So Gloucestershire Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust came to us and said, we're interested in looking at this problem. So we took it forward um, and ended up working with a supplier called Polygeist on this. So they did the technical work and um, our team were providing kind of technical oversight, input and support between the trust and the, the supplier, and also checking that the code did what we wanted it to and met all the requirements for the trust. So the project uses a GAN to generate length of stay predictions for patient records. So it takes the information that you get when a patient is admitted to hospital and produces a prediction for how long they're going to stay. It then uses a cumulative density model to try and provide some kind of confidence bands type thing of how long they might be likely to stay based on a number of different factors and then provides a risk level for that patient. So rather than providing exact prediction, because in reality, that's maybe not that useful and there's lots of factors that might change, but it provides a risk score from one to five to say, okay, when this person's come in, based on their profile, what treatment they've had in the past, maybe who they are, what they've come in with, their risk level three for staying in the hospital, which has a certain number of days associated with it. So that can then be used by clinicians to say, okay, we know that this person is at risk of staying in hospital for a significant period of time or a, a non-significant period of time and try and factor that into um, how they think about the care, maybe what would they go on and use that useful information to try and help them inform the sort of set of care they're going to get at the outset when they come into the hospital rather than developing it in, in time. So it was a really interesting project. Um, and like I say, there's a case study, which I'm sure your listeners can could have a look at, which provides an end-to-end kind of summary of, of the project. Does it work across all the specialties or is it just, just for some of them? So I think it covers a range of specialties. It was specific to Gloucester, Gloucestershire hospitals. So the data set that was used had 
the specialties that are covered by that trust hospitals. And I guess if you took it to another trust, those specialties might change. But as far as I can remember, it covered all the specialties on admission and lots of other factors as well, like the age, maybe the frailty. There was a number of like binary conditions, like is a patient an oncology patient? Are there falls, risk, that type of thing? So there were specific factors that were coded in based on the input data set. Um, and that was what was then fed into the GAN to, to produce the prediction. But it, it presumably is generalizable. Yeah. Is, is there some interest in doing that? Definitely. We've had some engagement from, from a couple of different trusts in how they do that. I think it comes back to the thing that we were saying before about kind of how federated the NHS is in that not all data is, is kind of collected identically in, in all the different trusts. So we've been working with a couple of different trusts to help them to understand what the factors were that fed into the data set that informed this model in the first place. So they can then go back and say, okay, here's how we would take our data to produce an equivalent set of features or variables to feed into the model. But yeah, the idea is definitely that it's generalizable and there's learning that can be taken to, to lots of different trusts. And question for you, Chris, really dummy question, but Nottinghamshire Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust is not the same as Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Is that correct? No, that's right. Yeah. So the trust that I work in is uh, it's a mental health and community physical care. So we're a massive trust. We, we deliver trust out of a huge area across the whole of Nottinghamshire. Whereas, yeah, Nottingham University is a, is a acute setting. Got it. So we have been doing quite a bit of work with Nottingham University hospitals to replicate the model and we'll sort of be continuing that over the next couple of months. But I guess my, my question for the room, if I may, is are machine learning models really that generalizable in healthcare? So again, it sort of comes back to the idea of patient feedback possibly, but given how specific healthcare needs are for specific populations, you know, it, is it realistic that we would have a central repository of machine learning models for loads of different things? Or is it better to train them locally and build them locally and develop them locally? Because again, I'm coming from outside of healthcare, but certainly from what I'm seeing is variability in age, demographics. Um, I'm sure there's enormous healthcare differences in different regions of the country. So again, from a purist point of view, should we be actually be trying to generalize the models too much or should we maybe try to generalize the approaches to building the models as opposed to the models themselves? Yeah, I think for me, it's the latter. I think it's the concepts that are generalizable. I think for a multitude of reasons, like you just said, Amadeus, and kind of like what Chris was touching on, you you want the idea to be generalizable, but the diversity of the population as just one factor means that you couldn't lift and shift a model exactly, I don't think, and another trust or, or another region and expect it to work just as well or in, in the exact same way. So I think a lot of what we're doing in Skunk Works is to try and build out these concepts for specific trusts, but to try and provide the help and support and maybe going back to what Jennifer was saying about documentation, trying to help people understand how a model was produced so that when they come to re-implement it in their region or their trust, they understand the considerations that need to be made and they have as much as the information as we're, as we're able to provide to help them to get to the same point that we got to with the trust that we implement the model in with in the first place. Yeah, I have to agree with that as well and what, what Matt just said. I think for me, especially when we're in the very early days of AI sort of supporting some some aspects of the healthcare system. And I think especially when we look at from a skunk works point of view, we're very experimentational. Our projects are only very short, maybe only a couple of months, maybe only a couple of weeks. Um, and to try and make it very generalizable in that time can be can be very difficult. So in terms of our approach, in terms of very small, very focused projects to see whether or not 
it, it is feasible to be able to help solve this problem with AI. And then as to Matt's point, then to see whether the approach can then be applied to different areas. I don't think we have actually an answer to that. And I hope that's something that we can explore as a team as we begin to finish more projects and talk to more trusts is that we will have an answer or an approach even on, on how to do that in the most effective way. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate, actually. What, because why not? I think that's interesting what you're saying about are they generalizable? And I know what you mean. I think my counter argument to that would be, though, that so, for example, some I mean, this is a fairly crude example. Some populations will differ by age. You know, there are some areas of the country that are much more elderly and you obviously would expect to see different patterns in healthcare there. But it, it seems to me logical to suppose that you could model that as long as you've got in the model the age of the patients. That perhaps wouldn't go all the way because it might, you know, having an old population might change the way the hospital functions slightly. But I feel like it would still, you know, I feel like the model would still run okay. I think they would always, there are always going to be some loss, isn't there, between moving them around. The other thing I'd say is that in terms of looking at the way the whole healthcare system works, if you had a model, say, that predicted length of stay, because length of stay is a, is a, a clinical as well as a patient experience issue, like it matters. If you've got a hospital and you say, oh, the, the length of stay are much longer in this hospital for an equivalent patient, I think my question would be, why is that from a clinical point of view? It almost seems like we're saying we should be able to, you know, we should be able to model this. It should be, you know, because people are people, aren't they? What's, wh- what's different about this hospital? It might be OK that it's different. It might be some reason that, that it relates to some aspect of the population, but equally why it might not be. You know, it's a big thing these days that we talk about is, uh, you know, unwanted clinical variation. And I think that would be a good example of that. And if you think about some of the places, you know, some of the kind of scandals that we've had and some of the things that have happened, there's been you know, thing in maternity. I, I think you've got to ask yourself, you know, if mothers have got worse outcomes somewhere or, you know, whatever, like, you know, why is that? So that, that is another lens, I think, to look at it through. I think the, the thing that I would say on that, and I agree with what you're saying, Chris, definitely, is something that we've seen in our work with Skunk Works is that quite often before we dive into a project, there's that stage of trying to work out if the, if the, if the solution to the problem is an AI model. And I think that speaks to kind of what you're saying there is you ask the question, do, do we need to put a model in straight away, try and fix this problem of long stay, or should we take a step back, have a think about what the problem is, you know? Do we need to ask some more questions, try and work out exactly where the root of the problem is coming from, and then move on to that stage of help of getting AI to help as well? I think it's definitely important to kind of take a wide approach and be open to the idea that an all singing, all dancing model isn't always the best solution straight away. It might be to think about procedures or process or strategy or you know focus of how the hospital deals with certain things before you move on to that kind of maybe more technical um, solution to your problem. Yeah, and equally, and obviously you're not already doing this, but others could after you've done what you know what you've done because your projects are quite short term. Equally, well, I think the model can pose questions back to that. You know, it could be like a two-way process, can't it? Yeah, for sure. There's a really catchy. I think it's a McKinsey phrase, but you know the journey of descriptive, predictive, prescriptive analytics. So, like we we always drive for descriptive analytics first. So, to Matt's point, what's the big picture? Like before we jump straight into the prediction and I think there's still such an important there's so still so much that's unknown and that could be uncovered through descriptive statistics that's really really important so that's something that we're very keen on making sure um, we communicate is we're not here to say AI is the solution it's absolutely not it can be really powerful for specific 
things, which is what we're trying to uncover and share and communicate. But actually, I think understanding, you know, the environment through descriptive statistics is really, really critical. And indeed, for inferential statistics, comes that matter. There's a lot of debate. I'm not going to, and this is yet another rabbit hole I'm going to ignore for the purposes of brevity of the podcast. But yeah, I think you can, machine learning and statistics both need to sit alongside each other and to have a full picture, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that we have started in the Skunkworks team is a series of workshops called Deep Dives. And part of these deep dives are to explore the problem fully. So we have a whole session on problems and understanding the problem description and really exploring that space. So our five workshops, we do spend quite a significant time actually saying, what is the problem? Who are the users? What is the intended purpose of what we are trying to do? And what question are we trying to answer? And trying to be really clear about that, because that will really inform the solution. So to Pat's point earlier, really understanding, is AI the right route for this? Is there other things that we can be considering? So we do offer those deep dives as a way for the trust to explore with us in terms of the problem sets that they have and whether AI is the suitable solution for that. Yeah, indeed. And that's really great, isn't it? Because, yeah, so that's not AI at all, is it really? That's that's almost like the the, the foundation of what you're doing. And that's really, really important. So oh. and that's what Amadeus, you were saying that earlier, weren't you? You were saying that actually algorithms and AI is actually quite a small part of the whole kind of system. So the last project we've got some interest in is uh, nursing schedule optimization. Yeah, cool. So that's another one that we've been doing kind of in-house using the capability function. So that's been myself working on that. And this is a a project that, again, came through the problem sourcing events that we run. So it's working with Northwest London CCGs. This is a group of CCGs that cover um, a number of trusts across London. And they came to us and said, at the moment, when a nursing student is doing their training, they go on sets of placements across hospitals. As part of their accreditation for their degree, they need to go and get practical experience in wards to get an understanding of how uh, wards work and, and to gain clinical skills. And currently, how those schedules are put together is um, there's placement coordinators which work in hospitals, and they have a number of students, maybe from a number of different universities. They have a number of wards, and those wards can take a number of, uh, have a capacity to take a a certain amount of students. And um, placement coordinator goes through and manually produces these schedules. And these schedules can be quite complicated because different students from different universities will go on placement at different times. Different universities will have different requirements for their students. So some universities will need students to go to certain type of wards at certain time of year. Some universities will need them to go to specific wards to get specific skills because of how the course is run. And other universities will just need them to go on a number of placements over over the course of their degree. And that's obviously a fairly simple problem from the perspective of the constraints aren't enormously complicated. They're just hitting certain counts and making sure wards don't go over capacity. But when you've when you've got maybe 300 students and 90 wards and you're trying to forecast those or put those put those placements in place for a year or two, that problem quite quickly becomes very complicated or has lots of different solutions at least. And that all combined with the fact that the placement coordinators have lots of other things on their plate as well. This isn't their, the only part of their job, but it's a very time-consuming one. And then layered on top of that again, the thing which is maybe a bit less measurable, a bit less kind of um, defined by a constraint, is that they're, because of how the 
placement system currently works and how the schedules are produced, they're finding that the um, sort of diversity of placements that students go on can really vary. So some students go and see all different far-flung parts of the hospital, maybe small teams that have a single um, a single space at a particular time of the year, and um, all the way through to maybe working in A&E or an intensive care unit. Whereas other students end up going on placements at lots of similar types of wards, so maybe lots of um, surgical wards, where although the types of surgery that's happening is different and that helping patients recover from is different. The skills are similar, um, are analogous, and they and maybe the diversity of um, kind of working environments they're seeing isn't quite there. So that's all kind of a long way of, kind of setting the scene. But what they came to us and said was, is there a way that we can use optimization or maybe, maybe kind of like operational research type techniques to present our placement coordinators with a number of different schedules with some maybe some scoring metrics to help the coordinators to understand what the benefits and the drawbacks of those um, sh- placement schedules that have been produced are. And then the placement coordinator, rather than having to do this long process in Excel, just has to read through the schedules, look at the scoring and say, actually, this one is ideal. Maybe make a couple of tweaks to it because after all, they're the humans with the expertise who have been doing these jobs for years. But this is meant to kind of simplify that element of the job. And it comes back to the thing we were saying before of not replacing jobs, trying to make their jobs more interesting, not making it so they have to sit at their desk for maybe a week, two weeks, three weeks, producing these schedules all day, every day. They can click a button, leave to run for a few hours, come back and they've got the schedules there. Getting onto the technical side of it, that's uh, kind of how it does it. The, the the algorithm that we settled on was using kind of like a genetic algorithm. So this was an opportunity to explore something interesting, an algorithm that maybe doesn't always get the absolute best solution. So we've been calling it an optimization project, but with an awareness that it's not always going to reach an optimal solution. And I think it fits well for this subject topic because there isn't always an optimal solution. There's lots of different wards that these students could go on. As long as they're getting some diversity, uh, there isn't like the most diverse range of wards. There's a, like, not a specific combination of wards that would fit that. There's lots of different combinations. So using something like a genetic algorithm, which explores the search area and finds a set of schedules, which meet all the criteria and give a nice um, diverse broad range of placements in a way that's interesting and is easily explainable back to um, users. So maybe some more kind of like constraint modeling type approaches where it's using lots of different iterations to kind of do it in a maybe more mathematical sense. You can go to someone and say, okay, here's how the area was explored using mutations and uh, recombination of schedules. And even for maybe people who aren't aware, who weren't aware of a technique of the technique before um, you started explaining it to them, it's something that has, that is technical, but has a real like a real life kind of analogy, I guess. So it has a touch point for people. Yeah, so anyway, this is a project that is slightly less mature than the two we've already spoken about. It's one that's being explored and working on at the moment, and um, we're working towards a solution, but it's a slightly different type of one, maybe a little bit less data science-y, but it's been interesting nonetheless. Yeah, it does sound very soul-destroying. I must say the idea of sitting with an Excel spreadsheet for weeks on end, faffing around. I imagine that you probably used to do it with Post-it notes, and that's what I've got in my head, sitting there. Shuffling bits of paper around. It's a nice model, isn't it, really? So the computer basically shows you five different things and gets you to pick one. And you use your human judgment. Yeah, exactly. So it's doing all the heavy lifting of... Go, so so how, it, how it works is it goes out and initially sets out a set of placement schedules that meet all the capacity requirements. So you start off with a set of schedules that would work. If, if you just randomly allocated the, the placements, you could give that to them and it would work. But then it goes through a, a, a load of iterations and mutating the schedules. So swapping where students are going on placements, taking two schedules and crossing them over. So taking the front half of schedule A and the back half of schedule B and sticking them together to see if that gives you an improvement. And it goes through loads and loads and loads of iterations like that, scoring them every time 
um, filtering them like a leaderboard. And after you've had a certain number of iterations, like you say, it says, here's the top five schedules, or you could run it a number of different times and say, here's the top one schedule from the five runs. And it then, like you say, it then just provides this person with the opportunity to go through and say, okay, yeah, here's, here's what the schedule looks like. Which one do I like the most? What's the, what's the issues with this one? And giving them that scoring gives like this quick first look of, okay, here's the strongest schedule and here's why. Whereas at the moment, if you looked at a schedule, the placement coordinator would have to go through and say, okay, actually this person is having five different placements. This person is having two different placements, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of it that isn't super high tech or, um, you know, kind of cutting edge, but is all combined together to provide a system that simplifies lots of small elements of the role that might take half an hour each on their own. But when you're trying to do it all in one go, it could take up a really significant amount of time that you were saying. And it's, it sounds like quite generic. So presumably this could be used anywhere where they do this. And also, I guess it could be used in similar scenarios, not allocating nurses to placements, but allocating people to something, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's so I think schedule kind of generation optimization is quite a well-explored area of kind of operational research. The reason that I was building something or trying to develop on existing repos to add some value was it's a slightly different, I guess, problem of I, I, when, you, when you sort of research this subject area, there's lots of examples of like producing a rotor for a factory or producing a nursing rotor. And in those cases, you don't necessarily mind about what someone has done previously as long as like they aren't doing too many hours it's, it's kind of basic things like that whereas this problem was looking to try and ensure diversity across the full range of their course so when you allocated a placement in the middle of year one you also had to think about the placements that are allocated in the middle of year three so that they weren't going on the same placement each year over and over again. But no, definitely, it's it's definitely something that it's a problem or a task that is done up and down the country at trusts all over the country because most trusts have nursing students. And like you say, it maybe would then translate to things like, I think doctors do similar types of placements, or even if there were nurses where you wanted to make sure, or I guess clinical staff, you want to make sure they were seeing different number of departments or working in different number of areas, it could be used like that as well, definitely. I do wonder whether it could, um, I don't know, because, I, for example, you're saying about, it. you know, when you're making a rotor, it doesn't matter kind of what you did before. But I'm just thinking like the classic thing, because I used to work on the wards years and years and years ago. The classic thing is, if you do Christmas this year, you don't do it next year. So that'd be a really good example of getting the model to say, like, I don't want anyone to have two Christmases in two years. And that's quite a hard thing, I think, for a, compu- for a human being to do, because they've got to kind of, you know, they've got to consider that such a lot of data. Mm-hmm. Um, but a computer can obviously just sort of bang that kind of thing out. Yeah, I think that's what's nice about this type of approach is that I, I, I guess I keep saying that it's not like enormously high tech. It ultimately is just like kind of stacking blocks together. But I think the problem for a human is that, like you say, there's so many on a ward or with nursing students, there's so many people and there's so many variables that a computer can do all those kind of comparisons and prioritizations but a person like you say might go oh this is really difficult to think about so again it comes back to the thing of trying to simplify stuff that is hard but doesn't need an incredibly high-tech solution just needs something that kind of breaks it down into a way that a computer can easily consume yeah i mean it's all high-tech isn't it really it's all you know computers are doing millions of operations however we think about it um they're doing stuff that no human being could do aren't they essentially because and it would take too long it'd be too boring Right, well, we'll wrap up there then. So I'll just finish with the bonus question, which is, have you got any thoughts about what else people might want to hear about? So any subjects, people or projects that you think might be interesting to have on the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a really um, 
interesting program in the NHS Transformation Directorate Analytics Unit, where they have PhD um, schemes. Um, so they have PhD interns come and they look at some really interesting projects. So there's three really interesting ones going on at the moment. There's the automated text descriptions of imaging, further developing the synthetic BAE model and structural topic models, which I believe is being developed in R. So there's some really exciting projects coming down the pipeline and we're really looking forward to seeing the results of those in the next couple of months. Cool. Yes, I've done some structured topic modelling. It was it was the least worst option that I found. So I'll be, I'm sure they're doing it much better than I did. Any other suggestions? Uh, no, just to add to that, a fourth project which um, they're running is on simulation with hash.ai. So agent-based modelling of any wait times using this cool platform called hash.ai, which you don't worry about the .ai bit. It's basically just a web-based environment where you can code currently in JavaScript or Python um, simulations, and it's really snazzy in 3D visualizations, and it's open source. So that's a project that I think we'd definitely be following closely, given the shareability of it. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple of things in uh, in data science now in JavaScript. I'm always surprised that it's... Um, but yeah, some people seem to really make it work, don't they? Cool. Okay, well, thanks very much, everyone. Very enjoyable podcast. So I'll just finish up with my usual wrap-up. So thanks to Tom for the editing. We haven't had too many disasters, actually, this time, so I think it's going to be not too difficult for him this time. But I'm sure he'll do a beautiful job of it, as always. So if you want to know more about NHSR community, then visit us on the web at nhsrcommunity.com. If you've got any comments or questions about the podcast please email at nhs.rcommunity at nhs.net, which is a bit of a mouthful. I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put all the stuff that we've talked about. We've talked about lots and lots of things today. There's loads of GitHub repos and stuff, and they are excellent. I've, I've seen most of the stuff that we've talked about today. So I'll put all that in the show notes as well, and the guests might be sending me to one or two other things that I've not seen as well afterwards. And yes, I think that's all I want to say. So thanks, thanks again to my guests, and we'll see you all next time.